0: Open your Bibles, if you would, tonight to the book of Ezekiel in chapter number 1. We've been taking a few weeks on these Wednesday nights to think about how God called some of the Old Testament prophets. And we thought two weeks ago about how God called Isaiah. And we have thought last Wednesday night about how God called Jeremiah. And tonight we come to the prophet Ezekiel and we see the call of God on this man's life. Now, it's interesting that Ezekiel's call, we would say, into the ministry, is the longest prophetic call in all of the Bible. In other words, God spent more time calling Ezekiel than he did Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Apostle Paul, or anybody else in all the Bible. So Ezekiel's call is a long call. Now, if you, took a, if you received one of the outlines or one of the handouts when you came in tonight, I wish you would take that and look at the top of the handout, and notice what it says. When God called Ezekiel, Ezekiel was in Babylon. He was in a place where he did not want to be, and yet there in that place God gave Ezekiel a vision that sustained him and gave him a reason to live. And so you remember that the children of Israel had been disobedient to God. They had not served him faithfully. And God had warned them, if this continues, you're going to be carried away to Babylon. And you're going to be there for 70 years. And it's going to be horrible. You're going to be in captivity. You're going to be like slaves in a foreign country and sure enough, that happened. Nebuchadnezzar and his army invaded Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, and many of the Jewish people were carried into Babylonian captivity. Now, it's interesting, the Jews were deported kind of in waves. They didn't all go at the same time, and so Ezekiel, when he was probably a teenager, was taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, and there he was a captive. There he was a prisoner, as it were. And so while he was there in Babylon, God spoke to him, and God put a calling on his life. And that says to us tonight that during those times and seasons in our lives, when we find our place, ourselves rather, in a place where we don't want to be, going through circumstances that we would rather not be going through, many times it is in that setting that God speaks to us and that God gives us some insight into himself. Some, he gave Ezekiel a vision, and God may give us a vision or a revelation or an insight or reveal himself to us in some way that is extraordinary or that is extra special. So think about what I've just said. Ezekiel had been taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. He did not want to be there. And yet while he was there, he was able to see God in a completely different light, in a completely different way. Now, I want to give you some things just to jot down tonight because as I was preparing this message today, I'm well aware that there are some here tonight, maybe several here tonight, who are in a... It's kind of like you're in Babylon. You're in a place where you would rather not be... Facing some set of circumstances that you would probably rather not be facing. And in your mind, you're just thinking, if I could get back to normal, if life could return to normal, it would be so much better than it is right now. You're kind of in Babylon. And yet, it may be that God does for you in your Babylon what he did for Ezekiel in his Babylon. That is, God may reveal himself to you in a very special way. Now, I want to concede at the outset of this message tonight that Ezekiel chapter 1 is one of the most complicated and one of the most confusing passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. Now, when I say confusing, maybe that's not the right word. It's just deep. It's just complicated. And today, when I was working on this at home, I thought, The congregation needs somebody smarter than I am to explain what Ezekiel saw and this vision that he had. This is one of those passages of Scripture you almost wish you had a professional theologian up here teaching this, a seminary professor, a college professor, somebody smarter than I am. But as I've read this and studied it and tried to understand it, and not only tried to understand it, but tried to put it together tonight in a way that will be practical for us, I I hope it will be helpful and I hope that you'll be blessed. So if you tonight are in Babylon, whatever that might mean for you, as I've said, God may choose to reveal himself to you in a special way, and he may do it tonight through this message. And what God wants you to do is to take your eyes off of the situation that you are currently in and somehow look above it. That's what I've called the message tonight. Look above it. Look above your circumstances and look above your situation and try your best to get a fresh glimpse of God. Let me give you some things just to jot down tonight that I think are so very helpful. Number one, remember this in in your Babylon, God's angels are in your midst. God's angels are in your midst. Now, In Ezekiel chapter 1, let's just go back and look beginning in verse number 1. Now, it came to pass in the 30th year. Now, this probably means the 30th year of Ezekiel's life. He was 30 years of age. In the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kabar, that is in Babylon, that the heavens were opened to me, and I saw visions of God. And so, in this Least likely of places, he's seeing this vision of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest. And he's having this vision. And then at the end of verse 3, it says, And the hand of the Lord was upon me there. And so there in Babylon, God reveals himself to Ezekiel with a vision. And also it became apparent to Ezekiel that even though he was in an unfamiliar place, God was right there with him. And God's hand was right there and God would be taking good care of him. Now, beginning in verse 4, I'm telling you, this is where the chapter gets a little bit deep. He said, Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north. That whirlwind probably refers to the Babylonian army that was coming to invade Jerusalem and to destroy the city. Remember, when Ezekiel was taken to Babylon, the city of Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed, but that day was about to happen. It says, A great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And so the first major thing that Ezekiel sees in this vision are these four living creatures. Who are these people, and what do they represent? Most likely, they re- most Bible scholars say that these four living creatures represent four angels. And as far as the type of angels that they represent, most would say they represent the cherubim. Now, turn to chapter 10 of Ezekiel, and I will just show you why we think this is talking about the cherubim. Remember, while there are about millions of angels, probably, there are different categories of angels, and one of those categories is a a category called the cherubim. That's C-H-E-R-U-B-I-M. In Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 1, Ezekiel said, I looked, and there in the firmament There in the sky, there in the expanse, that was above the head of the cherubim. And so, in chapter 10, it seems as though he defines these four living creatures as the cherubim. And so, what do we know about cherubim? We know that they were a special group of angels that had direct access to the throne of God. They they were used... And are used, even today, to guard those things that are very sacred to God. In Genesis chapter 3, of course, we read that Adam and Eve sinned and they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. In fact, if you want to see an interesting verse, go back to Genesis chapter 3. And look with me beginning in verse number 22. Because this is the first time we read about the cherubim in the Bible. And so God had booted out Adam and Eve out of the garden of Eden, and in verse 22, we read why. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden, to till the ground from which he was taken." So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so the question is, why did God put Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden? Because in the Garden of Eden, there was a tree called the Tree of Life. And if a person ate from the Tree of Life, that person would never die. Now think about Adam and Eve, they had sinned, they had brought sin into the world, and that means with sin comes death. And so had Adam and Eve eaten of the fr- eaten from the tree of life, rather, fruit from the tree of life, they would have lived forever in an imperfect world with, un- in- with imperfect bodies in a sinful environment. And so God said... I, there's no way I can let Adam and Eve eat the tree of life. They'll never die, and they'll live forever in this fallen condition. And so God sent these cherubim to guard the tree of life so that Adam and Eve couldn't eat the fruit. So we see the word cherub, by the way, means guardian. And that I am ending is the plural of cherub, just like we put an S on the end of the word. In the Hebrew, they put an am if they want to make it plural. So cherub means guardian. And cherubim, or cherubim, means guardians. And so these are God's guardian angels. And the first thing we read about them guarding in the Bible is the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Now, we won't take the time to look at it, but in Exodus chapter 25, we read that as Moses had made the tabernacle, and in the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant, and of course in the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, but the top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the Mercy Seat. And the mercy seat represented the presence of God. And it was on this mercy seat every year that the high priest would go in and sprinkle blood on the Day of Atonement so that all the people's sins could be covered over and all the people's sins could be forgiven. So the Ark of the Covenant and the, and the mercy seat, which was the top of the Ark of the Covenant, was the most holy of all the furniture there in the uh, tabernacle. Well, it's interesting. We read in Exodus 25 that there was like a depiction, an image of two cherubim, two cherubs, uh, one on each side of the Ark of the Covenant. And these cherubs, these cherubim, were look, they were facing each other on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant. And so, symbolically, the, those were not literal angels in the tabernacle. They were, they were depictions of that that they had made, but it's symbolic that these angels are guarding the Ark of the Covenant, that these angels are guarding the very presence of God, because that's what the mercy seat represented. It represented the presence of God. And in heaven today, around the throne of God are the cherubim. And what are they doing? They are guarding the throne of God. Say, what in the world would they be guarding the throne of God from? Who's going to hurt God? Well, remember, Even today, Satan has access to heaven. And Satan, the Bible says, goes to heaven and he accuses us to God. And uh, so before Satan can even get to God, he has to go through the cherubim. And so the cherubim are not necessarily there to protect God because God doesn't need any protection. God can defend himself. But the cherubim are there just to keep God and the devil as far away as God would want them to be. The point I'm making is the cherubim are always guarding things that are precious to God, whether it was the tree of life, the ark of the covenant and the tabernacle, and even today, the throne of God in heaven. Now, what makes all that interesting is the Bible teaches us that before the angel Lucifer was kicked out of heaven, he was not only an angel, he was a cherub. He was around the throne of God. In fact, the Bible describes Lucifer as like the chief cherub, the most important cherub, the most beautiful cherub. And so he had unlimited access to the very throne of God. And yet, of course, we know that Lucifer had pride. He wanted to be worshipped just like God was worshipped. And so he ends up getting kicked out of heaven for that reason. And so I'll, if I, anytime I'm thinking about that, I always, I always want to make this point. If you think about what is the opposite of the devil, most people would say, what's the opposite of the devil? They would say God. No, God has no opposite. God has no equal. The opposite of the devil would be one of these cherubs. You see, he, it's like God's up here on his own category, infinitely above everything else. The angels are beneath God. The, cherub kind of, the cherubim are the, kind of the, what we might call some of the top layers of the angels. And so Lucifer was one of those cherub. But don't get thinking that the devil is the opposite of God. Because then that would just make God the good force and the devil the bad force. And they, but they have equal power. Friend, let me say this to you. The devil does not have anywhere near the power that God has. And the devil wouldn't have any power had God not given it to him. And so, if you want to try to think, well, who would be the opposite of the devil? I would say the archangel Michael. Now, when you compare Lucifer to Michael, at least you're comparing two angels. Now, granted, one of them's fallen, and one of them is still standing in in the presence of God. Or maybe compare uh, the devil, if you want to say, well, what's the opposite of that? Maybe Gabriel, but not God. God and the the devil are not on the same category. The devil is even when he was in heaven, was an angel. He was not the the counterpart of God. And so as Ezekiel is having these visions, as God is opening, as it were, heaven to him, he sees these four living creatures, and these four living creatures, again, represent the angels, the cherubim, that are around the throne of God. Now, at the middle of verse 5, we get a further description of these four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. And it describes the actual body of these four living creatures, of these cherubim. And in verse 10, it says, As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion, each of the four had the face of an ox, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. And so these four living creatures, they each had four faces. And you just read man, lion, ox, and eagle. And most would say the face of a man is symbolic of the intelligence of these living creatures. The face of a lion would be symbolic of the courage of these creatures, and then that of an ox, the strength of these angels, and that of an eagle of the speed that these angels have. These are guardians. These are protectors, and they protect those things that are precious to God. And so why, when God began to reveal himself to Ezekiel there in Babylon, Why would God have shown him these four living creatures? Why would God have shown him these four-faced angels? What was God saying to Ezekiel? Well, I believe what God was saying to Ezekiel is, Ezekiel, I know you're in a place where you don't want to be. No Jew would want to be in Babylon. I know you're in captivity and you would rather be free. But I want to remind you, even there, even in this particular place, the angels of God are with you. And they are there to guard you. And they are there to protect you. Just like they protected Adam and Eve from the tree of life. Just like they protected the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat in the tabernacle. Just like they're protecting my throne here in heaven. Those same angels are there to protect you and to watch over you. And these four faces that they have should say to you, These angels have intelligence, they have courage, they have speed, they have strength, and they can protect you, and they can defend you, and they can give you aid. And so the first thing that God revealed to Ezekiel was these four angels. And aren't we thankful today that even though we can't see them, God's angels are here to protect us and to guard us, and to lead us, and to watch over us. And there have probably been times in all of our lives. I, I know there have been times in my life where a, the angels of God have protected me through their intelligence, through their courage, through their strength, through their speed. An angel can go from point A to B quicker than I just snapped my finger. And God was saying to Ezekiel, those same angels that are so dear to me and so near to me they are with you in Babylon, and even in that most difficult of places, you are not alone. Somebody ought to say amen. I mean, that's some pretty good. And that applies to us tonight. In our lives, wherever we are, God's angels are there. They're in our midst. They're watching over us. They're protecting us. They're helping us, and they are there to, uh, to keep us safe. You know, when I think about God's angels being around me does a couple of things. First of all, it makes me very grateful to know that God would send his angels to protect me and watch over me. Second thing is it does give me a certain amount of courage to know that I have angels surrounding me. It says in Psalm 91 11 that he will give his angels uh, charge over you to keep you in all of your ways. But I'll tell you something else when I think about it, and I don't, I don't think about the angels as often as I should. But when I think about God's angels, it makes me not want to sin. Because I wouldn't want to do anything that would embarrass an angel. Now, we shouldn't want to sin because we don't want to you know, do anything against God. But there's just something about being in the presence of holy angels that have been dispatched from heaven to us that makes me say, God, help me not to sin. Because the angels would feel, not only would you, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus feel uncomfortable, but the angels would be embarrassed, and they are embarrassed any time we sin. I'm saying to you tonight, the first thing that God wanted Ezekiel to see there in Babylon was that he was not alone. Angels were there, and those angels were going to take care of him. Now, that's a powerful thing. Now, the second thing I want you to see, and we're going to get into this, As 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 this vision continues in Ezekiel's life, but go ahead and write the point down first. Number two thing to remember in Babylon: number one, God's angels are with you. Number two, God sees things more clearly than you do. Sometimes when we're going through a difficult time and nothing seems to make sense, and we ask God why, or how, or how long, or when will this get over, or what in the world's going on, well. We just need to remember in our Babylon that God sees things more clearly than we do. Now, look in verse 15. This, to me, is the most complicated part of this vision that Ezekiel had. He said, now, as I looked at the living creatures, so he's looking now at these four angels, behold, a will was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. And so I started to put a picture on the screen tonight to try to visualize all this. But the one picture that I looked at today that got it closest, even, it, even the person who was responsible for that picture said, this is not fully accurate. So I just said, I'm going to let you use your own imagination. But in your mind's eye tonight, picture these four angels. And on next to each angel, picture a will, just like the will on your car just picture that wheel as we read about it because now Ezekiel is seeing these wheels and he's thinking to himself, God, what do these wheels represent? Verse 16. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of beryl, and all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was as it were, now watch this, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. And so picture picture a wheel and then picture a wheel within that wheel, and this is what is next to each of these four angels. And undoubtedly Ezekiel is looking at this, and he's thinking, God, what do these wheels? What do they represent? And the wheel's within the wheel, what is this? When they moved, verse seventeen, they went toward any of the four, any one of four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. As for their rims, they were so high, they were awesome. And their rims, now watch this, were full of eyes all around the four of them. And so you've got these wheels now, but picture now in the wheels, you've got eyes, eyeballs all around or all in these wheels. Verse 19, when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, because there the Spirit went. And the wheels were lifted up together with them. For the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. And so the 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 first thing of significance here is these. Four living creatures, but now that we have the wheels in them, we learn that whenever the four living creatures would go in a particular direction, that the wheels would go with them. They would always travel together because the spirit of these living creatures was in these wheels. Verse 21: When those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them. For the spirit of the living creatures. Was in the wheels. And so, what do these wheels represent? That's why I said at the beginning you needed somebody smarter than me tonight to teach this lesson. I think most Bible scholars would say that one way or another, these wheels represent something about God. The fact that these wheels have eyes in the wheels represents God's all-seeing eyes, God's all-knowing mind. God knows everything. And so we could say that in, in, in that sense, these wills represent the, the, the presence of God, the very presence of God. Some would say, and I think there's truth, to, certainly there's truth, to that, that not only do these wills represent the presence of God, these wills represent the judgment of God. Because God is holy, and as holy God, He judges sin. And so, as as these wills are following these four living creatures, these angels, these cherubim, these wills are, as needed, executing the divine judgment of God wherever God wants that judgment to fall. But someone that I read today, and I thought this was very insight on this, said that these wills represent the providence of God the providence of God. That is, those things in our lives that happen that don't make sense. That we, we can't see the meaning or the purpose Behind So many of the things that we go through in life. We look at a situation. We're in our Babylon and we say, God, I don't see it. It doesn't make sense to me. And then that's what Ezekiel was thinking in literal Babylon. God, how am I here? Why would would I be in Babylon in captivity, a prisoner? I'm a Jew. I'm I'm your child. Why would you have allowed me to come here? And God gave him the vision of the four living creatures. And God was saying, you're not alone. The angels are there with you. Look above where you are. But then God gave him this vision of these four wheels or these yeah these wheels and then wheels within the wheels and then the eyes all within those wheels and God was saying to Ezekiel Ezekiel what is not clear to you is clear to me what you can't see I can see and so just know that it all makes sense to me even though it doesn't make sense to you. What a message tonight. What an easy application for us during those Babylonian seasons of our lives. During those times when we say, God, I can't see it. God, it doesn't make sense. God, why? God gives us a vision, maybe not exactly like Ezekiel had, but tonight he's giving us that vision through his word. And God is saying to us tonight, God is saying to some of you tonight, what doesn't make sense to you makes perfect sense to me. While you can't understand why I would have allowed this into your life, into your family, into your health, into your finances, into your situation, why you can't understand it, I can understand it. And what you've got to do is look above what you can see. Look above what you can understand and to know that my eyes see it all. And from my perspective, things are very clear. Do you see why I titled this message tonight, Look Above It? Because in Babylon, God did not just give Ezekiel a vision of Babylon. He didn't just help him to see the whole terrain of that country. God was saying, Ezekiel, you're in Babylon, but the only way you're going to survive in Babylon, the only way you're going to make it through Babylon, the only day one, one way that you will one day make it out of Babylon is if you lift your eyes above Babylon, if you look above your present circumstances and focus on my angels there to protect you. Focus on my eyes who can, that can see and understand what you cannot see. And then number three thing that God was saying to Ezekiel, he was saying, you've got to look above it. You've got to get your mind above where you are. And he was saying, look at number three. He was saying, Ezekiel, earth may not be perfect, but heaven is. Earth may not be perfect, but heaven is. Look in verse 22 of this chapter. Because this is all part of the vision. Now we've moved from the four living creatures to these wheels and the wheels within the wheels with the eyes. And now we get a glimpse of heaven itself. The likeness of the firmament. That is the expanse. That is the sky above us. Above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. And under the firmament their wings spread out straight one toward another. And he's talking about Uh, how these angels are, and they're just beneath the firmament, just below God's heaven. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. And so, he gets not a perfectly clear view of heaven, but God lifted his eyes now Not only so he could see the angels and these wheels, but now God lifts his eye and says, Look up a little higher even than that, Ezekiel. Because as you look up higher, you'll see the expanse. You'll see the sky. And just remember on the other side of that sky is heaven itself. And so God was helping Ezekiel to see heaven. One of the things that helps us most when we're in Babylon when we're going through hard, difficult, confusing times, is to remember our troubles are only temporary. We're only going through these problems for a little while. We're headed somewhere else. We're headed somewhere better. Heaven is our ultimate home, and we're on our way to heaven. And that's what God was saying to Ezekiel. He was saying, Ezekiel, I know earth may not be perfect. Your circumstances certainly are not perfect. What you're going through is painfully confusing, but look above it. And look to heaven and remember that one day that's where you will be. What does it say in the Scriptures? Our outer man is perishing, but our inner man is being renewed day by day. What did God tell Paul in Colossians chapter 3? Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. No, look, we have to look up and we have to look to heaven. And we have to remember that we will be there before we know it. We will. You ever hear somebody, you know, we always want to put off when we're going to die. Sometime you'll hear somebody say, maybe they're 55 years old, and they'll say, yeah, I'm middle age." How many 110-year-old people do you know running around? Only way you can be middle-aged at 55 is you're going to live to be 110. But there's something about being 55 and saying I'm middle-aged makes us feel better. But I don't know why it makes us feel better. Hey, if you're 55, look at it like this. You're 55 years closer to heaven than you were when you first got born. And if you're 95... Well, if you're 95, you're really getting close, right? <laughs> I mean, you're 95 now. It, it, you're getting pretty close to heaven. But that shouldn't, you know, that thought shouldn't be like, oh, my goodness, I'm 95. How much longer can I go? Uh, my mother, I don't think she'd mind me saying this, she, turn, she has a birthday tomorrow. Can I say this? I, 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 and, and she's turning 79 tomorrow. And so before the service, oh, yeah, I think we should can, tell her happy birthday. So, before the service on Sunday night, Charlie Joe was in my office, and uh, I had the things to put on her birthday cake, you know, the seven and a nine. I said, come here, Charlie Joe. I said, these are for Graham's birthday cake. We're going to have a party Thursday night. She looked at that seven and that nine. She said, UJ, those are big numbers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then she said, then she asked me, Good. she said, 79, how old do you think Grammy's going to live to be? I said, I don't know, how old do you think she's going to live to be? And she looked at that, and she took those candles, and she reversed them. She said, she's going to be 97 is how old I think she's going to live to be. I said, well, I think that's good. But you know, when you're, when you're how, you know, I figured this out, I figured this out somewhere in my 20s, how at whatever age you are, You've never been that old before. And so I know that was a deep thought right there. That was, that was, this is why you come to church on Wednesday night, because I'm giving you insights into things like that. But like, I remember when I was like in my early 20s, maybe I was probably 19 or 20, and it dawned on me I'm no longer in high school. I'm too old to play football in high school. Then you get to be 21 or 22 or 23, and then you think, I'm no longer in college, I've passed that, then you get to be 25, and so what I'm saying is, the problem that, that we have now, feeling old, we've had it all a long time, <laughs> it just didn't seem such a big deal at 25, but at 25, we were thinking, man, I can't believe I'm 25, because when we were 25, it wasn't that long ago till we were 16, and while 25 is not a big number compared to 16, you know, 25 moving on up there a little bit. And then you just multiply that on up as we go through life. What I'm saying to you, friend, if you're saved, every, every birthday you have, you're one year closer to heaven. You're one year closer to the presence of God. You're one year closer to a new body that'll never get sick. They'll never have pain. They'll never have a headache. They'll never go to a doctor. They'll never take medicine. They'll never have a surgery. And so instead of saying, man... I wonder how many more years I have left on earth. Really, the question is, I wonder how many more years till I get to go to heaven. Because when I get to heaven, it's going to be so wonderful and it's going to be so amazing. So that's what God was saying to Ezekiel. He said, I know that you're down in Babylon and it's so painful and it's so bad. But Ezekiel, look above it. Look to that celestial city. Look to that final home. Look to your eternal dwelling. Look to heaven because you are Headed there. And then the fourth thing, this is the best thing. God always saves the best for last. L- write this down. Jesus is seated in heaven in charge of it all. Now, beginning in verse 26 of this vision that Ezekiel had, notice what it says. And above the firmament, that's now, now he's saying to Ezekiel, You've got to look above the firmament. You've got to look above the sky. You've got to look even above your own thoughts of heaven. And he said, above the firmament over their heads, that's over the heads of these cherubim, was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above. There's an appearance. Now, notice how he's saying the likeness of a man, the appearance of a man. He, now, God is giving Ezekiel a vision of himself. But God is so great. God is so awesome. God is so uh, majestic that as Ezekiel is trying to describe this vision, he's having to say, it looked like this. It had the appearance of that. In other words, God could not reveal his his fullness to Ezekiel. Ezekiel couldn't have had it. But he's nonetheless getting some kind of a vision of God. Verse 27, also from the appearance of his waist. In the New King James, that pronoun his is capitalized. And that's the translator's way of saying, we think this is talking about Jesus. And, and a pre-incarnate Christ, a vision of God himself. And also, from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around it. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And so Ezekiel's vision ends, this part of this vision ends by Ezekiel seeing a vision of God himself seated on his throne, the appearance of a man, telling us that God became a man. This is a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus being seen in heaven before he left heaven to come to earth, and Ezekiel is looking up there, and God, through this vision, is saying again to Ezekiel, I know what you're going through is painful, difficult, confusing, hard, and from your perspective, bad, but what you've got to do, and friend, let me just say this tonight, what you've got to do What I have to do, not just what Ezekiel, what we have to do is to look above it and to see the angels of God sent to protect us and help us and to see not only that, the providence of God who knows what we don't know, who sees what we cannot see, and to see heaven where we're ultimately going and to see God himself and to see Jesus. And if we could see Jesus, the old song says, Turn your eyes upon whom? Upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely, what? Dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, if we keep focusing on Babylon, if we keep focusing on what we're going through, that's just going to get bigger and bigger and brighter and brighter. But if we'll look above it and see Jesus, not just the the angels, yes, but not just the angels. Something better than the angels. These four wheels representing the providence and the mind of God. Yes, but more than just the mind and the providence of God. We look above it to the the firmament, to the expanse, to the sky, to heaven. Yes, but more than just looking to heaven. To look even into the best part of heaven. Looking even above the surface level of heaven. And to see Jesus himself. And if we'll focus on him. Turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Yes, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. My challenge to you tonight is what I titled this sermon when I was home today working on it. Look above Whatever you're facing, look above it. Wherever you are, look above it. And see Jesus and let Him see you through this Babylonian time in your life. Amen? Father, thank you for the vision you gave to Ezekiel. There in Babylon, God, so long ago. And God, I thank you that you... Saw to it that that vision was recorded in your word. So what Ezekiel saw in Babylon. Over 2,000 years later. Your people could be seeing in Texas. God there wasn't even a Texas back when Ezekiel had this vision. Certainly was no Pasadena, Texas. Hadn't been founded. Wasn't even in America. But God in your providence. You knew that one day there would be. And you knew that there would be a Wednesday night in the year 2018 when a group of Christians would gather in this place, many of whom are in Babylon tonight, and they would need in their Babylon the same thing that Ezekiel needed in his. And that is a fresh view of you. God, tonight, for every person listening to this message, I pray you would help them to look above what they're facing tonight and to see Jesus through the eyes of faith. With your head bowed and eyes closed tonight, would you pray that for yourself, for a family member, for a friend? Would you say, God, help me to look above it? Help him to look above it. Help her to look above it. Help us to look above it and help us to see Jesus. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to remember what we're going through is only temporary. We're going to a better place. And until we get there, we have a divine escort of heavenly angels to protect us and watch over us. Until it's our time, God, to keep us safe. God, help us to remember you see what we don't see and know what we don't know. God, help us to see you tonight high and lifted up above God. Some of the most painful things that human beings could ever go through. Use this message tonight to encourage your people. In Jesus' name, and all the people said, amen.